0: What's up, folks? My name's Justin Kana. Happy Monday. This is The Emulsion, episode 14, and I feel it. I feel it today, because I think today is going to be one of those episodes where we look back on the show and we reference this as a really, really great episode, not just because I'm feeling feeling pretty strong today, but because we have a guest. I will get into introducing him in just a moment, but uh, first up, today's beverage is actually a green tea. I've got a blend of sencha and matcha here. You can see the mug on the video. Um, it's a it's a cute mug. It's it's one of those awe mugs. My, my girlfriend's brother and his girlfriend actually got both of us mugs with our little monogram, I guess you could call it. Is that what you call it? When uh, the first letter of our first name. We got that for Christmas this year because they knew we'd be moving in together. Hers is like red and white and has a little A on it. It's so adorable. Uh, but you know what else is adorable? This shirt. I'm wearing, look at this shirt. Isn't that awesome? It is a uh, $9 Michelin Man t-shirt, and it's my new favorite podcasting shirt. It's like an awesome little throwback maneuver. I think this logo is from like the 70s or the 80s. Hit a thumbs up right now if you like my t-shirt. Uh, Today's guest is the restaurant columnist for Norway's largest newspaper, uh, Verdensgang, a writer, radio, and podcast host, and all-around food personality. And in addition to designing high-end kitchens, he also runs beingcritical.com, which is a site dedicated to restaurant and reflections on meals. He's even got tips there on how to, like, cram the most Michelin stars into a weekend or his latest predictions for world's 50 best stuff that we talk about on this show quite frequently. He's literally uh, calling in from Norway today, so the time change is a little bit crazy, but I'm super happy to have him on. This has been a long time coming, and I'm going to do my best Norwegian pronunciation of your name. If I butcher it, you just get to hang up. Well, welcome Andre blomberg
1: that's, that's very close. Almost. That's, it's sort of eerily almost German. Yeah. Like I lost the war. It's, yeah, it's, it.
0: it's that back of the throat noise that I never, never really got down with Norwegian. How are you today?
1: I'm great. I'm super privileged to be on. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it's always great to be able to come on anywhere and spill uh, my opinions and uh, give my word on whatever's going on. that's I mean that's what's the most giving giving part of this job.
0: Right. I'm super happy to have you and we we um, we met in Norway actually to give everybody a little bit of history. Um, he came in to eat at the restaurant and I had the pleasure of, of of cooking for Andre and that's more or less how we hit it off. We met most recently in Chicago, had a great meal at Portillo's little hot beef right. sandwich, yeah. which is great
1: surprisingly good um sandwich for the sort of an unassuming place i thought
0: yep there's just a lot of weird decor on the wall and you oh man anyways uh speaking of hot beef sandwiches what was the last thing you ate that made you smile
1: you know i'm contrary to perhaps popular belief i'm a simple man i I take pleasure in sort of simple things and and uh I I had a tub of uh, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. There you uh, go uh, over the weekend, just with that artificial chocolate sauce on top. Yep, kind of solidifies, uh, solidifies on your perfect on your ice cream. Uh, so so I mean that's great. I I was I was thinking I was gonna say Donut Walt in Chicago. Yeah, which makes me smile. Also super but, good, but it kind of goes against one of my pet peeves at the moment which is the lining up for food so yeah um, so i'm gonna i'm leaning towards the ben and jerry's
0: right perfect i was just gonna say we we also had that little point in chicago where we were talking that like you can take just as much appreciated appreciation off of like a fine dining tasting menu as you can a tub of ben and jerry's so that's why we get along i think right um so ba- to start off, I'd like to kind of get a little bit of your background um, so people can kind of know a little bit where you come from. Um, so maybe we can chat a little bit about you yourself as your career being a critic and you can um, just kind of give a little bit of background on how you got into food itself and then your journey from, because you 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 have a chef background and then you're, you're a critic and you're also a designer. Um, so basically, how did you get started? Talk me through it.
1: Sure. I mean, as you said, I'm originally a cook uh, with some sort of front of house and finance added in along the way. Um, I grew up uh, mainly with my dad uh, being a traveling salesman, so dining out or kind of sitting at the end of the bar while he entertained clients was sort of what opened the allure of the restaurant. I think when you're at the age of 12, the coolest person on the planet is whoever's the bartender making the mock mocktails for you. So so that's kind of where it all started out I, I got started in the industry kind of late at about 19. got it um i heard you talking about uh, sort of walk-on trainees and and the Stasier pro programs or that whole part of the industry and that's kind of how i got started i mean i walked on as an apprentice in a mediocre local italian restaurant in Bergen. got it um Italian restaurant with not an Italian person working like uh, a French head chef. Yep. Um, there was an English sous chef who came from the military so he was all he was all about cleanliness and the French guy was all creative. Um, so that's kind of where I got started picking up extra shifts as a fry cook at the late night kind of first generation Tex-Mex place where our biggest seller was a was a cheese and nachos and cheese dip and the cheese dip was just um, shaved cheese, uh, some salsa, and more shaved cheese, and then in the microwave I think about nice. thirty-five seconds, real around, and then another yeah, <laughs> real high so end. Re- yeah, original first uh, first generation uh, Norwegian Tex Mex. So uh, so that's kind of that. And then I went through Swiss Hospitality College. Um, I worked in London for a number of years, uh, mainly front of house roles. Sure. So I finally, opened my own restaurant in Bergen which is now probably close to 20, 15 years ago?
0: So that was, you were the executive chef or you were a part owner or how?
1: Well, I bought um, a bankrupt uh, sort of institution of a very small, intimate French restaurant um, and uh, did it up um, and decided that my cooking skills weren't quite good enough for the level of food that I wanted to do, so... I hired a chef. Got it. uh, And then I did the front of house on the evenings, and we did the prep together in the daytime. And then after about a year, I let him buy 50% of the restaurant. Okay. He paid all of the money I had invested. So at that point, I was at zero. And we did that for about three years, and then he bought me out, and I went on to Oslo to take over as the general manager of a michelin star restaurant in Oslo, which was called UL uh and is now no longer it's no longer there sure unfortunately it's is the case with a lot of <laughs> Norwegian Michelin star restaurants yeah um so that's um kind of that went on to open my own hotel together with my wonderfully talented wife yes originally a pastry chef um and spent some time at per se um and then um at some point, kind of hit the wall and decided uh, enough is enough with these guests and operational issues. Mm-hmm. And I want to do something else and kind of branched out on my own, was asked to, to be a critic for, um, for this newspaper.
0: So they approached but, uh, you.
1: Yeah, they well, they had a, like, a general wanting people to apply. They'd had a critic for years yep. and then they wanted to go in a different direction. They ended up hiring me and my colleague, and we've been there now for seven years, I think, or certainly six. Fantastic. And, and uh, the idea was they wanted someone who was an industry person, so that's me. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the other person who's a, who's a writing person, he's an author, uh, very well uh, known Norwegian author. And uh, so he's a author foodie, and I'm a restaurant person who can. Get away with writing some stuff, yeah,
0: because you've been in it more or less, right? Like that's your unique yeah. perspective, and then you can. I, I I respect your opinion a lot more because you have you have the restaurant experience. You know, like there's these people who write for, about food, and they will sometimes say a quip or two, which is very like guest centric. Um, mm-hmm. But I. I I like that you I mean, have both sides. I
1: have no illusions that what I do, and I've had this argument. I had this argument with Elizabeth, uh, and I'm going to butcher her last name. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think her last name is Obach or something uh-huh. She's from Holland, and writes Elizabeth on food. And we had this discussion. and uh, We've had it several times. I mean, I have no illusions that what I do as a critic is write a good story. If mm-hmm. I stop writing a good story, then I will be out of a job. Right. That doesn't mean that I have to write scolding reviews or necessarily blow smoke up someone's uh, behind. Yep. Uh, if I can write a good story about a mediocre meal, I'll still be in the money. For sure, for so, sure. Um, so that's kind of, um, uh, you know, my I write, I've, and I've had this discussion with chefs in the past. I write about going to restaurants for people that, Go to restaurants or consider going to restaurants. I don't write about running restaurants for people who do that. Yep. So But uh, being not being anonymous, um, it's not impossible to get a hold of me, and sometimes chefs do. For sure, we might, we might go through my notes together from a different perspective. But the articles are, of course, meant to be there for uh, the dining audience. Uh, Got it. I find a lot of the time that. Chefs will, chefs will say that my colleague, who then writes the other week, and so we write every other week, mm-hmm. um, they will just flat out say that he's wrong, but they <laughs> will disagree with me. Okay, there's a difference.
0: Yep, yep, yep. Because there, then there's that mutual like respect, at least that like.
1: Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and I mean we, we can have. Discussions about emulsions. Yep. Mean, I, I yep. love the name of your podcast. Yeah. It's one of my pet peeves. Right. At the moment. I yep. really despise emulsions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, and then the, these are the sort of things that when you go out and dine a lot, and certainly if you have a like a base level knowledge, um, some of these trend words can just start rubbing you the wrong way. For
0: sure. For sure. Um, and then that journey from writer when did you start more or less getting into the design game and we can just briefly talk about it just because i want to kind of like highlight it as something that a, a chef can do you know
1: yeah so i started about three years ago i worked for uh, i worked for a local company here we were sort of a sales agent for a, a bunch of different factories around the world and so i designed uh, professional kitchens for mainly restaurants, but also hotels, institutions, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and they—they uh, they were, I think, all of my colleagues there were a fairly large operation. I think all of my colleagues there are uh, old chefs of some sort. I mean, some guys have worked in uh, hospital kitchens for uh, fifteen years and really know that game. And right, some of us have worked in restaurants, and so it was a case of. Um, I think I there's an advantage to being a people person. Which, yep. Let's face it, not all chefs are <laughs> true uh, true story. <laughs> so, there's an advantage to that and then it's just a case of uh teaching yourself uh, computer assisted drawing. Got it. And then uh, get going.
0: I wish I could do that. That was I I feel like I could have a lot of really good fun with that, but like just being able to play around and put things exactly where you think they should be as opposed to like yeah, but, you know because I
1: mean, you've seen chefs uh, over the years i'm sure uh, throw tantrums over the langoustines being too small when mm-hmm. they come at the door at the back door or whatever imagine the amount of rage they can get into when there's deliveries of uh, sort of uh, you know three four hundred thousand dollar
0: custom made uh, <laughs>
1: yeah yeah so uh, i mean you get to deal with chefs every day
0: right for sure that's crazy Um, so back, back to the, uh, the critic part, maybe we can, uh, just go in a little bit of a conversational jam session about more or less like what you're excited about and maybe not so excited about. I know you kind of mentioned previously, like standing in line for a meal. Um, and then maybe just kind of go into the current state of the industry because you're in it, you, you're, you're still eating out quite regularly. Um, so what are you excited about? And then maybe what are you not excited about? At this current 2017 moment,
1: well, I got to tell you, I'm as far as being super excited about something. I'm super excited about this summer. I'm going to Spain with my family. Amazing. Uh, we have a small uh, little um, apartment uh, near Marbella, and I'm going to be cooking a lot of local seafood for my family. Fantastic. You know, so that's. I think that's the core of of the whole chefing game which I'm allowed to get more into now that I don't uh, I don't do the 15 hour days yep. of, uh, cooking and I don't smell like onions when I come home exactly um so there's more inspiration in that as far as the industry I think it's um we're in a bit of um we're in a bit of a diff- difficult spot to be mm-hmm, honest I mm-hmm. think um as you said I'm not excited about lines um that seems to be somewhat derivative from from Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, that sort of thing, where, where you're building up some individual places. Um,
0: you get the hype to, going. Yeah, it's...
1: you get a, a ridiculous amount of hype that mm-hmm. you didn't get in the past. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, some of these places are only marginally better than others, and I decided... I think at the turn of this year as a new sort of New Year's resolution that I'm not going to be lining up for a marginally better burger or marginally better ramen or whatever it might be. Um, I draw the line at uh, Donuts but the (laughs) line at Donut Vault isn't really that long. It's not that uh, bad. It's not that bad if you're a morning person like me. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure that there is a correlation between the amount of hype that people are able to generate for their restaurants. And the actual quality um, that comes out of the product, and I think, uh, you know, there's a there's a there's an element of the industry that's not very often talked about, and it's the financing bit, right? Um, which tends to be quite cyclical in its um, in the way it works. So, in order to open these elaborate restaurants. Um, you need someone with um, that's going to back you—an investor or a bank or, or that sort of thing. Yep. Um, and they tend to be very cautious about putting their money into the business of restaurants. Um, normally, they'll put their money—they'll um, put their money behind sort of proven concepts. Yep. Uh, which I think is part of the reason why we're getting a lot of uh, cookie cutter restaurants at the moment.
0: Sure. They just pop up all over the place.
1: Yeah, and it feels like you've been to this place before. Yeah. Mm Because they all kind of look the same. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And, of course, the problem with this is by the time investors have, have gotten on board and they've started putting money into it, they make some sort of copy of something that was successful and probably a lot of their success was... I shouldn't say probably, but perhaps a lot of the original success was due to a good marketing campaign, Mm -hmm. social media, guerrilla campaign. Right. And then they get behind someone who's third or fourth in line to do a very similar concept. Mm -hmm. And then they ultimately fail. And then for the next cycle, these investors will be more cautious and we just keep on ending. Sure. We end up sort of pushing the money further away. Right. By, um, but just trying to do what the other guy was doing.
2: Yep. Um, so,
1: I mean, that's, that's where I am as, as far as that goes. I've listened to some of your, some of your podcasts mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. prior to coming on here. Yep. And, um, you know, you, you touch on, on some of these issues as well. And, uh...
0: Yeah. It's a big thing right now. Like it's, it's, it, the industry is in a hundred percent weird place. Like there's the, all these articles coming out about the restaurant industry is, is, has a bubble and it's about to burst. Uh, all these definitely. places that ended up, you know, riding that trend or, you know, using that social media hype to get uh, either a line formed or just get people sharing about their stuff. Uh, right. And it ends up being very easily replicatable. And, you know, then rent prices go up or people don't have as much hype anymore. And then how do you kind of survive after that? So I, it, I'm with you. It's definitely, I, I agree that it's it's going in a weird place. So I want to bring up a quick news article as we normally do on this show. There's um, an article that Eater did that more or less references this, um, and it's all about Paul LeBrant. I sent it over to you. I don't know if you got a chance to read it. Um,
1: I've I've actually heard the uh, if listen to the podcast. The, that podcast, three, yeah. Or yeah. Or yeah,
0: so Eater eater does a podcast called Upsell, and they had Paul LeBrant on it, which, if anybody doesn't know, he was from Cortone, and then he was most recently at the Elm. Um, that closed almost uh, two years ago. Um, but he's kind of like out of a job. He's doing consulting for other other restaurants, and the article actually references um, just all about how he doesn't want to do a restaurant right now because of the, the current... I guess you could call it economic atmosphere. Um, Like you said, a lot of investors are are nervous to, and I'm going to quote, investors are sitting there and they want to do stuff, but they're still a little unsure with regards to the economy in this country and in this city. And he's referencing New York, of course. Um, Was there any other good nuggets out of that podcast that you got?
1: I I think he's, uh, of course, He's also a bit leery about the thing that, you know, if there is opportunity, he's going to go for it, which I think is, is true for most chefs. Right. I and mean, everyone's just waiting for that opportunity, which not necessarily, that's not necessarily a good thing because when the opportunity comes, it might be too late. Yep. Um, because these investors are slow to get out of the boat. Mm-hmm. And we've seen a lot of, um, we've seen a lot of restaurants that have come over the last few years that have, um, less money invested into them they they feel more like sort of makeshift put together by enthusiast kind of terms sure. um more than the design through adam tiani or yeah um you know david collins or right uh, that sort of expensive designer mm-hmm. feel so and i mean you were um you were here in norway for a period of time and mm-hmm. I think we've had uh, perhaps uh, too many of these um, these uh, sort of, uh, I like to call them hipster restaurants yep. of course, which is uh, um, they kind of, there's a conscious decision to look as casual as you possibly can. Right. Which I think the kind of uh, negates the idea of being casual. I mean, if you, exactly. If you've had to go through how to get casual enough in the morning, <laughs> you're not being casual about it.
0: Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Uh and it goes back to that, like being able to see what everybody else's restaurant looks like uh, just by looking at their website or their their Instagram, as opposed to actually having to go there and experience the room. You end up kind of like copying and pasting things without getting context sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to Scandinavian stuff, uh, what, because you have a very interesting bit on kind of like Nordic style dining. And kind of like what makes? I'm glad a, you find it interesting. I do. I really, really do because it kind of like it, it it provides justification for a lot of the maybe not justification, but it kind of like you kind of like pull the veil away on a lot of these. Uh, the reason that people kind of are running restaurants the way that they're running them, and the reason that the food looks at the way that it does. So maybe you can go into a little bit of your two cents on that.
1: Well, I think the new Nordic is kind of a. Um... The term that's used um, for all of these restaurants, well, or certainly the ones who originate here. So, and I think New Nordic has very different implications depending on who you're talking to. So, for a chef, for industry people, uh, it's an almost sort of holistic approach to cooking with a, with a sense of being one or at least very close to your surroundings. Mm-hmm. Um, ideally, there's a manifesto somewhere in the background, lurking in the background, sort of semi-solid manifesto um, about how you're going to make the world a better place through your, right. through your dining experience. But I think for the diner, um, the perspective is very different. I mean, they kind of identify this as the locally sourced, ideally foraged ingredients. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a lot of upfront flavors from smoke, pickling, fermenting, salting, curing, that kind of. That kind of stuff um and then there is of course the near comical lack of protein uh which uh which goes hand in hand with this uh sort of uh, uh, if you will personified by the perfectly cooked piece of root vegetable got because, it uh, that's all ob- ominous <laughs> in, in all of this um, there's the meticulously random plate up, which is a term I think I've coined. It right, that it's supposed to look random, but mm-hmm. you know, guys are spending hours <laughs> coming up with this this layout for the for the plate, mm-hmm. uh, which goes hand in hand with the number of uh, number of staff that some of these places employ. I mean, in the old days, the French classical restaurants used to have a ridiculous amount of staff, but it's gone completely mm-hmm. overboard with these new Nordic. Uh, uh, with these new Nordic places,
2: sure, and
1: then, and then I think also for the diner, it's that uh, kind of sparsely decorated, uh, natural wood centric room with mm-hmm. the exposed beams or brick or or cement work, mm-hmm. and then um, to top it off, you should I you should probably have the slightly uncomfortable Scandinavian design furniture. Yep. And I think that's uh, you know, and I think right there we've just about described sixty to seventy five percent of all self-respecting restaurants that have opened in the last three to four years.
0: I was going to say seventy five, but that's probably closer. It's probably a little bit lower than that. There's a few places that are doing it differently, but I I just think that's a hilarious kind of like view into.
1: And I just stopped trying to. So seven years ago, I would write in my reviews kind of a little. Uh, so my reviews t- tend to sort of follow a uh, ebb and flow. So uh, there's a little bit about uh, sort of an introduction, which is supposed to sum up my expectations before I go there. There's a little thing about the room or how it feels. And then there's a little something, and, and this might come in different, you know, different tempo or variation of one thing comes before the other. Mm-hmm. Right? I always try to write something about the food as a general idea. So generally, what's the food like here? and um, so before that would kind of be uh it's an italian place it's right it's a japanese place yep whereas now uh, or it might have been that old tired it's an international <laughs> Yeah. Um, but now i think it's just a it's a modern restaurant which is all of the above sure this is all of these things i've just mentioned yeah Is it's it's a restaurant that have opened in the last six months that's yep. what it feels like that's mm-hmm. what the food's like and you know, that's fine, but the inherent problem of this new Nordic thing is, it, so if you were, and I think I've told you this in the past, I think mean, if you're having escargot, so uh, garlic snails, right, for for a starter, then you're having beef bourguignon uh, as a main, uh, and then you're having creme brulee at the end. Not only are you having a heavy meal, but you're pretty sure that you're in a French restaurant, right. And it doesn't matter if you're in Singapore and the chef is from Austria, Mm -hmm. it's still a French restaurant. Yep. Now, because of the local identity of the new Nordic, as soon as this travels, it loses its kind of Nordic connection. Exactly. I think we're losing out as a region as far as a marketing uh, tool because, you know, you'll you'll have the restaurant I've just described. I think um, you would be hard pressed to say there's... there isn't a lot of difference from in what Sean Brooke is doing. Yep. Um, if if you went to the Catbird seat when Trevor Moran was the chef there in, in Nashville.
0: Um, who was previously at Noma, for everybody who, exactly, who doesn't know. Okay.
1: And now it's, to a lesser extent, I think now with Ryan Foley, who's there. Yep. Uh, but none of these chefs or restaurants will openly identify as new Nordic restaurants.
0: But at the same time, they're just, like, they're, like, taking a picture of their food and kind of, like, I would do this to my friends sometimes, like, show a plate and kind of be like, where do you think this food came from? And they're only, you know, because you could throw up any restaurant in the air and they'd be like, yep, that's probably where that's from. But it's like, no, it's actually from this other place completely on the other side of the world.
1: Right. Um, Which I think also ties back with what you you were talking about in the previous episode with the uh, where in the past Estacié uh, was someone who worked somewhere for three to six months uh, or maybe even a year. Uh, Paul Liebrandt talks about it in the either upsell uh, episode as well about uh-huh. how he he for Pierre for uh, for a year and. Um, now people do shorter and shorter stints Yep. in a variety of different places. Mm-hmm. They fill up their CVs with uh, fancy names, and then at the end of the day, the only thing that you're able to bring with you is your ability to visually copy what you guys did. Exactly. And you're not able to bring the flavor out of it. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then it kind it. of like, there there's this en- English game we play in school called telephone i don't know if you played it in in norway as well but you kind of like everybody sits in a circle and the teacher would tell a message to someone and you kind of whisper it to the person next to you and then by the end of the circle you see what the message has become because it's usually always super fucked up
1: (laughs) right and i think that's uh uh, the, there's the generational gap because I think when I was a kid that was called Chinese whispers. Got it. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it was the whispering thing uh, and then it just completely changes as it goes through. Yep, exactly. And, and I think uh, also, I think you know Benjamin uh, yep. Lee who writes mm-hmm. uh, The who runs the And he has a good piece on that about how the New Nordic is a whole lot of copying each other. Right. Um, which... Since he wrote that piece, which has now been quite a few years, mm-hmm. um, has translated into now being the entire kind of semi-self-important uh, dining segment. So, Got it. This isn't, this isn't a problem for Popeye's. No. Or, no. or you know, for Morton Steakhouse yep. or Oceaneer in, in Seattle. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. This, is, uh, this is a problem for every one of these kind of alums that are coming out of these restaurants and... It tends to, just, uh, tends to just copy a lot of their uh, uh, what they've seen. And I'm not sure that the food's brilliant in Mm-mm. all of these
0: places. Because it's easy to copy either an aesthetic or even like you can even read a menu. And as long as you have a basic understanding of like the techniques that they're using, because the, a lot of the times the te- techniques that they're using aren't all that complicated. It's roasting, dehydrating, grilling. Um, and you can more or less replicate it in a, in a certain way, but there's a certain, um, I mean, you, you've eaten at places like Noma and Fronson and like the places that are really on the high end cutting edge of it and really may or may not have originated some of these ideas and where, you know, a lot of this stuff stems from. And it's a completely different experience when you really have it well done. And it's a true, at least in, in, in my opinion, having had those experiences where you have it and then you... Go to another place that's more or less playing the imitation game and trying to be so and so. I get it. And
1: I think it's. I think it's also important to say, of course, that it, the fact that I've mentioned the Catbird Seat and Brooke in mm-hmm. this context does not mean that I think those are the ones who are not succeeding. Right. Quite the contrary. I think mean, they. But they make good examples because people have heard of them. They are really good places. Right. They really enjoy the dining. With both of them, but. Um, but there are all over the, um, all over the world, and certainly all over the U S That are popping up restaurants that are not necessarily doing this, um, the, well, the right way to the, right. to the extent that there is a right way.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd like to kind of go more into, we've already talked a little bit about kind of your, your view on restaurants and how you go about writing a review, but, um, as far as uh, how you choose places to review these days, how do you go about?
1: So I think um, what's uh, I wouldn't say unique, but what's different about the way that I write about reviews to how or how I write my reviews to what was commonly the form in Norway certainly in the past is, um, so I have a, I have a great scale from one to six, um, uh, visually symbolized by a roll of the dice.
0: And this is, this is something that the newspaper has always had, or you brought this to yeah. the, okay.
1: No, so this has originally been with the newspaper for, for a long, long time. Sure. Um, and, um, I, I wanted to just write a story, uh, but the newspaper, they're very much married to these, uh, that they, <laughs> like to give for everything from art to books to restaurants. Got so, it. But six different grades is very limiting uh, when you think about you do maybe 50 different restaurants mm-hmm. in a year mm-hmm. and you want to be able to separate them. Yep. And so we uh, we decided uh, very early on that I want to do um, – the grade is sort of given – to the restaurants based on how well you succeed with what you set out to do so okay everyone's graded based on their expectation based on their pretensions basically right so if you have a um, hot dog stand and it's just a really great hot dog stand you can still get a six got it and i like uh, that if you have a fine dining restaurant with white table but you just suck at that you can still get a one <laughs> yep which wasn't always the case in the past. Um, certainly when I was in the business myself, if, if you had white tablecloths and starched staff, which is kind of the part of the business that I've been in, mm-hmm. uh, you were kind of guaranteed a five and upwards. Sure. Um, but of course, doing that requires that you have the base understanding of what's going to meet you when you get to the restaurants. So right. I do a lot of research before I go. Hmm. Um. Unlike sort of uh, famous uh, contemporaries like yeah, the New York Times and, and whatnot, we don't have the budget to visit a restaurant five times. Yep. So my it's usually one. Is, yeah, it's okay. just based off of one. Yep. Um, so my review is um, is always, and I try to tell people this is, to as many people as will listen that my review is one man's subjective opinion right. of one individual night mm-hmm. in a restaurant's long and uh, hopefully starts story. So, right. And it's got to be read as such. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not the uh, be-all or end-all of, of a restaurant, but it's my um, certainly my um, well-thought-through, I like to hope, or I like to think mm-hmm. um, opinion of, of that particular night. So but I try to get an understanding of what I'm gonna what I'm gonna get to when I get there, mm-hmm. and uh, I sort of judge um, the kind of the elements that we've talked about. So there's a little bit of the expectation, which is part of the research, mm-hmm. and then there's the uh, what does this place feel like? Because I find that the dining experience is so much more than just the food. Absolutely and uh, so what does it feel like what are the other people like here um and then what's the sense and then what can you expect as far as food as a general idea uh and then i try to get into that whether you succeeded with what you set out to do so if you wanted to do if you wanted to do ramen uh, does it deliver on those kind of promises does sure it Have the intensity of flavor is it piping hot is it uh, are the ingredients do they marry well and i think sometimes that's one of the challenges with this modern cuisine is it tends to be a lot of upfront flavors that don't necessarily that are all very intense and interesting on their own mm-hmm. don't necessarily make a harmonious and homogenous dish right um, i think uh i so saw the worst example of that recently where i I got one dish i don't even remember what the different ingredients were but they were sort of plated one next to each other and sort of from left to right there was four different ingredients and just visually looking at it you realize this is not going to be a cohesive dish no it's not even together on the (laughs) plate so i mean that's and i try to i'm um so in norway most critics are anonymous got it um i'm not um and um, that's not to say that I call restaurants in advance and say I'm coming, so bring out your best beef. Sure. Um, I tend to book in the name of whoever I'm dining with, just trying to. I was just going to say,
0: do you always do? You, do you always dine with someone, or is it's always yes. one person, or it's.
1: No, it changes from from uh, from time to time. Uh, I have some people that enjoy it more than others, and where I enjoy their company more than others, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. they might more frequently get invited. Right. Um, I think uh, I think that kind of just adds to the dynamic of it. Of course, whatever their opinion is doesn't really matter. But mm-hmm. It's nice to have someone to bounce your ideas off. A lot of the time the article or the critique gets kind of written as I'm sitting there while we're talking, like sort of um, phrases that come up in the conversation sometimes Got it. to end up in, uh, in the article. Right.
0: Do you ever... Um, is Has there ever been a situation where you're sitting down with someone? Because you, you go out with other kind of people in that sphere, like the food blogging critic kind of sphere. Do you ever... Um, have you had an experience where you go out and another critic is also writing an article on the same place at the same time? Does that ever happen?
1: Um, I tend to not really go out with a lot of um, food personalities in Norway. Okay. Most of the time I... So my dining world is kind of split into two. So for the newspaper, I... Uh, submit a number of articles every year they tend to be very norway centric with yep. sort of sprinkled in maybe 10 percent of international stuff okay um but then i also dine a lot uh for my own pleasure or for um books that i might have contributed to or uh, other things like that where the experience is very different so if i go to new york to eat out uh, to book Table, you've got to make a proper reservation, and I use my own name. Mm-hmm. And I'm more likely to get preferential treatment in places like that where there's a sense of professionalism about googling your guests, sure. or yep. you know, per se being the extreme example, of yeah,
2: life. absolutely. Um,
1: in Norway, I'll book in whoever I'm dining with's uh name, which more often than not is just someone who works at the wine monopoly, okay, or is my neighbor. Um, and then, um, because keeping track of fake names, I mean, it's impossible there. And, and how many times could I be John Smith? Yeah. John Smith would get preferential treatment. Exactly. So
0: yeah, there's, so, I couldn't you know, handle I try it.
1: To, um, try to sprinkle that in. And then, um, but, uh, by the time I, uh, by the time I sit down, I think, I mean, this is the argument I get most often is, uh. Well, you're gonna get recognized, mm-hmm. which I think is a is a valid point. Sure I think the the anonymous critic, the illusion of the anonymous critic. Uh, the anonymous critic is dead. Yep. With, uh, with Instagram, yeah, it's impossible, and and all of that. I mean, I meet arguments about Ruth Reichel and Gail Green, mm-hmm. and, and how they would put on wigs and that sort of thing. I'm not, I'm not sure people are kind of half jokingly bringing that up or right. if they just don't realize that, um, you know, Ruth Rachel's wrote for the times in the early nineties, sure. it's 20 years ago, uh, 20, 25 years ago, the world is a very different landscape. And, right. And Gail wrote for the, uh, I think New York magazine or something in, in 1968, which Wow. You know, talk about, it. it was before the, <laughs> before internet no no i think that's probably before the phone book for sure i mean that's that's how that's how long ago this was ridiculous i think they all so i don't think it's honest um for the reader because i think the reader is probably the only person left thinking that whoever's writing this to me is anonymous and thus getting exactly the same treatment as i am right um there's um not really a culture in norway for Comping or treating uh, sort of critics to to anything extra, probably mainly because a lot of them have always been anonymous. Yep. Um, But as I say, I'm more likely to I'm more likely to be able to get a get a late night reservation uh, last minute at Catbird Seat in Nashville than I am in Oslo. Right. uh, (laughs) Just because the culture is very different.
0: Yeah, it was a weird thing. Like we'd send free food out to people all the time. At least Faka And it was like, it, it was very weird, weirdly received amongst the Norwegian guests, because like you said, it's not really one of those things where it's like, but because like in the in the States, if you're if you're sitting at a counter, and someone sends you like a free dish over, it's like, Oh, my God, thank you so much. Like, that's, you're being treated as a VIP. Right. But in Norway, I right. feel like it's just kind of like those thing. like, okay. Why did you send me this? Yeah, <laughs> weird. We,
1: I have a policy on on that. Uh, it does happen very rarely, like maybe once or twice a year. Um, I will get uh, so the most sneaky trick that most of them try to do is uh, so if they have a wine pairing menu, uh, they'll they'll fancy up the wine pairing menu quite quick. Got it. After uh, after I sit down. Uh, and the, the ones who are smart about it, they'll then do it for the entire dining room.
2: Okay. Uh, the
1: ones that are a little, the ones that are a little, uh, perhaps cheap in their cleverness, they will not just do it for my table, which yep. just makes it very transparent. Right. Um, but yeah, maybe once or twice. Um, I would say on average, probably just once a year, I would get an extra dish or, or sure. something. And,
0: um, I'm going to slide in a a guest question there because a guest actually asked, how do you handle receiving complimentary food?
1: Well, I have this little, I have this little philosophy or idea on that. So if I get a complimentary dish, if it's a good dish or a great dish, I will enjoy it, but it doesn't weigh into my review Okay, because it's unlikely that, uh, Joe Guest will get it.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Um, so, but if it's terrible, you're gonna get into trouble. Right. So, it, there's really no upside to giving yep. you free food. Okay. You, know, you, you can only go wrong with sure.
0: it. Sure. Yeah. Um, but,
1: I mean, I've traveled a lot and I've worked a lot abroad, so I'm familiar with how it works and that that sort of that, that's a common thing. I think my first sort of VIP experience. Um, that's that's kind of marked me forever. Was at uh, Per Se, this is gonna be 15, 15 years ago. Wow. Uh, I was working at, uh, this was quite recently after they opened. Um, it was um, myself and two colleagues from the Michelin star restaurant in Oslo, uh, which had only recently lost its Michelin star, and that's why we were all hired. Sure. As sort of a push to get it back. Yep. Um, we were going to New York for a weekend to eat in a few different places. And uh, I had called uh, an old sort of mentor or acquaintance or friend. Um, it was called Michel Roux, who mm-hmm. was at Waterside in yep. London. They've they had three stars for probably close to 40 years. Forever, ago. yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I had called him and sort of asked for tips on how to get tables and that sort of thing. Um, and he had sneakily called these restaurants and said that some friends of mine are coming. Wow. Uh, would you please take care of them? What a hookup. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty awesome. So we got, uh, and I think at the time, Perse did 10, uh, 10 different dishes and probably vegetarian ten mm-hmm. cores, or like a seven course. Um, I think we got 27 different <sighs> presentations. Holy the shit! Three of us around the table, none of us got the same, with, with the exception of the tweel and the yep, uh, coffees and cream, and yep. that sort of the like the staples. But
0: that's ridiculous.
1: Um, it was pretty intense, and then um, <laughs> and one of the most memorable parts of that was uh, my sous chef at the restaurant uh, had uh, said that he had he had worked at Aqua. Uh, prior to coming to Uhu, and um, and so he was kind of a, the local in New York and mm-hmm. kind of knew the landscape, and he said, uh, per se, it's going to be good, but we don't expect anything, uh, you know, innovative or, or any, any sure. of stuff, you know. But we're going to see that other places here. <laughs> Uh, and he was served the now kind of iconic quail in a jar.
0: okay uh, I love was that dish
1: avant really guard at the time yep 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 so,
0: uh, Was this prior or post to your your wife being there? that was prior okay uh,
1: this was um, sort of how I formed uh, connections with them there and uh, we also had our wedding. Uh, person. That's right. And,
0: That's right. Uh, and,
1: and, and a couple of things like that afterwards. So with that sort of kind of original crew, I, uh, we formed some relationships based on that trip. Got it. We actually went to Sean George the next day. Wow. And, and this sous chef who is a bit of an um, um, awkward social person. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, he's very much a, a chef's chef. And uh, he, he had been to Sean George before. While working at Aquavit, of and Jean George had greeted them at the door. Wow! And, and he said, uh, "If he's there, if he's at the door, I am going uh. to shit my <laughs> And uh, he wasn't, uh, which was very uh, sort of pleasant. And then, kind of halfway through the meal, um, he was, uh, he was with his back towards the kitchen door at Jean George, which is kind of the far, uh. the far corner of the restaurant. And then uh, I was facing the other way and we were sort of mid-main course and um, and I said don't don't look now he's (sighs) coming he's heading to our table and we of course completely lost it but that trip was um, was really formative to how it used to be with I mean we were just a bunch of of, you know I like to call it fry cooks from Norway and he was and Sean George was genuinely interested in what we thought of his cooking.
0: That's so great. Uh, and,
1: and you don't see that anymore.
0: No. Because everybody, everybody has an opinion. You know what I mean? Everybody has an opinion now, and everybody is able to post whatever they want online. And everybody, do you know what I mean? Whereas before, yeah. you either had to have a blog or have access to sort of a publication to put your word out yeah. there. I mean, you, that was probably like early days of Twitter. No, and no one was really like <laughs> tweeting about meals or anything yeah, like and that.
1: I think this was before Twitter. Yeah, and, and I think. Yeah, I'm sorry for going on these ramps. No, it's fine. But, uh, I was just part of a discussion the other day, I think, online somewhere uh, about uh, someone was saying something about this beautiful camaraderie that is now, which is which is a crock of, uh, if you pardon my uh, French, a crock of shit. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the camaraderie was always there. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't on Twitter, right. on Instagram, and these guys like Michel Roux or jean George or. Um uh, I mean I remember uh when when I had Michelle come over to to Oslo or he was in Oslo signing books and I called him and said, Can you do you mind stopping by the restaurant? Uh just to, for a little sort of uh stand five minute stand up with uh with all the chefs. Mm-hmm. And he said, You yeah, know, of course, of course and he showed up and he said, My name's Michelle. Um you guys have probably never heard of me. I run this little place outside of London, uh, where we at the, the time had uh, mission, three mission stars for 30 years. And uh, but you've heard of some of the people who worked for me, so Marco Pierre White, uh, Gordon Ramsey. at the time Nico Landis was still famous. Wow. Pierre Colfman. Yep. And all of these guys worked there at the same time. I mean, right. This was right. Probably the best brigade that's ever been. Sure. Um, Dream team. Together. So. And I think so. I think that camaraderie's always been there. It's just we make a lot of we make a lot of song and dance about it now, and I'm not sure the camaraderie's really that good. There's a small, small, select group of elitist chefs that hit yep. each other on the back,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and, and uh, there's a lot of really talented guys that don't get any of your time.
0: Right. Exactly. Um, what are some Misconceptions you think people have about critics and writers and these people that kind of like give their opinion on blogs or online about food.
1: I'm not sure. There's. Um, it's all kind I'm of out sure. there, but. Yeah, I'm not sure. There's a lot of misconceptions. I think uh, the the landscape's certainly changing. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's changing in the way that people foresaw that it was going to change, though. I'm constantly met by the old argument that I'm a dying dinosaur because I'm part of print media. Got it. And, and uh, we don't have any influence or we don't have any sway. Sure. And now everyone's a critic. <laughs> and you can go on Yo. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Uh, and I think you mentioned uh, in a previous episode uh, Jay Rainer's... Yep. Uh, yep. The Guardian piece. That. Yeah. Yeah, about mm-hmm. Uh And I think the, re- the fact that we're discussing it... Uh, now a month later in a a podcast far removed from him uh, is a testament to his influence. Sure. And I think more so than we had expected, uh, you are now reliant on those trusted voices just because of the amount of noise uh, that you're getting. There's just so many opinions. You want to make sure that uh, the people you do listen to actually... They might not necessarily know what they're saying, but at least they're consistent.
0: Yeah, well, the, the cream the cream rises to the top at, at a certain point, right? Like,
1: yeah, I, I I think so. And I I mean, we're a fairly small country here. Of course, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we have a prolific uh, um, restaurant blogger here um, who who's a wonderful guy, and he does come out and eat with me every now and then. Mm-hmm. He, I, I don't have that kind of barrier between who's a blogger and who's a right critic. <clears throat> so, I mean, we enjoy a good food discussion. Mm-hmm. He comes with me. Uh, he's quite, he's quite famous. He certainly has a lot more Instagram followers than uh-huh. we do. Right, right. Uh, but I mean, he i don't know—maybe fifteen thousand people read his articles. Okay. Uh, yep. uh, throughout a month, mm-hmm. which I think is is pretty good. Yep. Um, but then, my readership is probably quarter of the population here throughout the time span of a newspaper. Crazy. Our online
2: reviews. Yep, yep. So
1: maybe six, seven 700,000 people right. uh, will read an article. So, of course, um, there are more people out there with opinions, the but I think there's certainly still the sort of established print media yep. reaches a lot further than people think. So The Guardian with Jay Raynaud on is a web page that a lot of people go to. Uh, much more so than uh, they would go to anyone's blog. I don't think there's any food blog out there that necessarily gets more clicks than... than no, no. <laughs> uh, so, so, I mean, that's, you know, you've got to... It is uh, it is changing, certainly. Sure. And I think the way that uh, people try to make money off of these things, I think... One of the misconceptions, of course, is that um, bloggers... Um, So a lot of bloggers will tell you they don't have any financial gain uh, from doing what they do. Mm -hmm. The the typical spiel you will get is, I will only write about a place that I enjoy. So if I go to a place and they comp me something, um, this is the blogger then saying, that if I go to a place, they comp me something, I don't like it, I'm not going to write about it. Okay. Um, So a, a lot of bloggers will have that philosophy. That's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you do that enough times, you're not going to get invited and all of a sudden your blog doesn't have anything to write about. Sure. At some point, you're going to take some kind of liberties with your own uh, morale on that, and and that's just human. The other thing is, that you commonly hear is I don't have any financial gain um, from writing my blog, but uh, you'll find... You'll find that uh, a lot of bloggers will be able to parlay their their online fame into books, or sure. their appearances somewhere else, or if nothing else, sort of um, increase social status, right? Which comes with having ten thousand followers on Instagram,
0: exactly. And we, yeah.
1: So, so I don't necessarily think that there is a that the line is so clear cut between the traditional. Critic and the modern blogger-based critic. Um, it you know, It's a platform
0: uh, game, right? More or less? Yeah. Like, yeah just where, exactly. where, you're, where you're kind of like, which channels are you using to tell your story? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, tell me something that you think is true that nobody agrees with you on. Like, whether or not it's... More, I, I mean, ideally it's food-related or restaurant-related, but, you know, it can be...
1: Yeah, so we're not going to go into classic cars. Yeah,
0: we could um, rename the podcast.
1: If if I was going to say something that's um, uh, that's uh, that's uh, that's true, that uh, well, there's all right. There's no such thing as an as an emulsion per se. Yeah, sure. Uh, It's it's always. Combined together of, of something. So, uh, I was at a restaurant the other day. My review's not out yet, so let's hope they didn't. Uh, they're not listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I was at a restaurant the other day, and um, they served me a lemon and pepper emulsion. Got it. Right. So. Uh, I'm sure with your uh, esteemed background, yeah. you, you very quickly right. uh, discerned that that's not possible. Exactly. You, you can't make an emulsion from lemon, lemon and, and pepper. Juice and pepper. <laughs> yep. So there's something else that emulsifies this. Um, so I asked the waiter um, what's in it? And he said, well, it's pepper and, and lemon. Uh. And so that's <laughs> that's fine. Yep. Uh, but how do you make it? So he he then went into uh well uh we use eggs and uh like a flavorless oil and um (laughs) so i said so it's a mayonnaise and he said yeah well yeah (laughs) so it's a lemon and and pepper mayonnaise right yeah
2: okay okay Yeah. yeah
1: So, and I think that's, um, yeah, I'm not sure everyone agrees with that. Yeah. So I think um, the concept of fermenting doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily add anything to a dish. Right. uh, Which I think has also become sort of universally true. I was at a small local food festival yesterday, uh, which is called the Chef's Day, and your Mm -hmm. previous chef, Chris, was there. Um, Oh, Contrast
0: had a little stall or whatever. Right. Yeah, okay. Like, got it. Yeah.
1: a bunch of bunch of other people. Yeah. Um, where the, all the sort of Norwegian uh, self-respecting chefs were um, voting for chef of the year. Okay. That sort of thing. Yeah. Nice little outing. Mm-hmm. Everyone had something fermented. Okay. And I'm not necessarily sure that's the best way to bring that kind of flavor profile into every dish. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I think. Uh, well, maybe Chris just had something that was pickled. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, I <laughs> Probably pickled for a very long time, close to being fermented.
0: Yep. I, I'm i looking at the dishes uh, currently on, on Lise Vaca's Instagram pretty pretty often, and I kind of like, I see quite a bit the pickles that I literally made last summer <laughs> on the plates now. Right. but Which but, is normally how we would run the kitchen anyways, because it's like, at this point in the season... Um, you're only getting kind of like some some peas and beans and maybe some rhubarb, so the summer really hasn't started quite yet. And we kind of structure would structure the kitchen to use the the larder at this time of the year. But it's just it's funny to see the, those things that I I made almost a year ago kind of like finally getting on a plate, which I think is interesting.
1: But this this ties into another thing that I that I've uh, thought a lot about recently, which is if you have um, a very limited season, like um, the Norwegian seasons can be. Um, and you have, perhaps even more importantly, uh, limited creativity. Why does everyone feel like they need to do 12 dishes? Right. Why are you not just doing four really good ones? Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of sort of forcing, in and, and I think this is where it also, we also get into problems with I now have three dishes that I feel quite well uh, that that I feel represent me as a chef quite well. And sure. That I can stand behind, but I need to come up with another nine. And so I go on Instagram and I try to find out what everyone else is doing. Yeah. And then uh, you have a fair idea of what emulsifying is. Yeah. Fair idea of what fermenting is, and then you see the pictures, and then it kind of yeah hodgepodge like being some sort of uh, mm-hmm. version of something that someone
0: else was doing i mean it completely makes sense when you think about like are, are you familiar with the like the new direction that noma is going to go in when they reopen where they're going to kind of like do a lot of like a very uh shellfish and fish focused winter menu and then in the summer it's going to be a lot of vegetables just kind of based on what they have to use at the moment um i think it's an interesting place for people to go maybe like if if you <laughs> Like you said, if you're in the winter and you don't have a lot of stuff to make a really me- nice menu that you're excited about cooking, cut your menu down to like six courses instead of eleven. You know what I mean? Yeah. i am be... not
1: sure he's going to end up doing that. Well,
0: no, because he had just, he strictly has the manpower to do it. You know, like but... he can do a he can do one one Norwegian mahogany clam per person, sliced into thirteen perfect slices. And do it for 65 people a day because he just has the straight manpower to handle something like that. But, you know, when we were maybe like four cooks in the kitchen, (laughs) I was like, how do you how do you navigate around that? I think it's an interesting point.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, you know, not that anyone's ever going to listen to me. (laughs) <laughs> like if, you can, if you can do four really good dishes or three, mm-hmm. uh, I would be much more happy in a place like that. Right. Than it would be in someone who's forcing out uh, seven. I mean, um, I went to a place quite recently who I feel was, uh, was guilty of that, where sort of halfway through the meal, um, I found myself reflecting that I've, I've now had the same dish. Uh, four times.
0: <laughs> you showed me these photos this is this is funny
1: it's just uh it's you know it's just perfectly cooked piece of root vegetable something pickled something smoked and something fermented yep and, and that was just that was just the melody throughout the meal and it at some point it's just and then of course something crunchy yep um and I'm and I'm thinking that's this is conceptually a good idea. And individually, most of the dishes were fine, um, but I've had it already.
0: Yeah, the the flow of the meal is just a little bit <laughs> blah.
1: Yeah, which I think is I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna sound like I'm telling people to get off my lawn, but, <laughs> uh, but I think that's kind of lost in uh, and I'm of course dating myself here, but. I think that's a little bit lost, the right. art of the structured meal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, I'm I'm getting too old for the 20-course tasting menus yep. altogether. Yep. But, but there's an art form to it, and there was a rhythm. And I remember 15, 20 years ago, we were discussing, you know, should the palate cleanser even be included on the menu when you write it up, or should it always be a surprise? Got it. And there was, there was like, arguments about... Should uh, you know? Should the foreground be before the fish or after yep. the fish? Yep. How does this really? And and you would have constructive discussions about that. And, and I think now people just don't give a shit.
0: No, no. And, um, and
1: I don't think you're gonna get gras anyway. It's true. <laughs> it's, a loss. it's
0: true. Uh, so going seg- This is actually a really good segue. Um, we've talked about it already, but the the dining landscape now, globally, I mean, you can talk about Norway or the US, respectively, but it's it's at a bit of a standstill. However, the economy is still fine, and people are still going out to eat. Everybody seems to be redoing their kitchens, like 11 Madison Park is going under renovation. French Laundry just it's did theirs, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, we have this ebb and flow of, of trends with platforms like Instagram being able to provide kind of like the bang and sizzle effect that we've talked about. Um, what do you think is next for going out to eat? What would you, if you had to, kind of make a prediction?
1: Wow, that's um, that's a big, uh, that's a big. Uh, it doesn't have to a be a bold prediction, right? It
0: doesn't have to be fine dining or casual. You can pick one or the two, but
1: I think uh, these predictions always tend to be some sort of. Uh, uh, almost like a make a wish. Make a yep. wish for what you want yep. the landscape to be more than because I don't think we can reliably make assertions as to what it's gonna end up being. Sure. I'm hoping for I'm hoping for casual to become casual again. Yep. And not and not a fashion statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean I went to a place the other day where it was the middle of winter in Norway, there was slushing snow outside <laughs> And the waiter was wearing cargo shorts, uh, a hoodie, and uh, an ill-fitted cap uh, with uh, sneakers—black sneakers, brown socks—and <laughs> and at some point, uh, and uh, the, the maitre d was also wearing uh, a football jersey or a soccer jersey from from the employee team of Noma uh, <laughs> to just point out that he had worked there. I think right. Uh, and at, and at some point, this is becoming a conscious decision for you to. This is what I'm going to put on. There's no way that these were the things that just were at the front of your. Sure. So, so I'm hoping for casual to become casual again. Yep. Uh, and uh, for me not to feel like a granddad, uh, Andre, when I go to these places. Right. It actually becomes down to earth. Uh, I'd like to, for things to be sort of flavor driven. Mm-hmm. Um, As you know, opposed
0: to ingredient driven? How it is? Exactly. Okay, got it. got it, got it.
1: So because now I find that we're using a lot of ingredients that we don't necessarily need to be using. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, also because we're forcing too many menu items on there, you end up with ingredients that aren't really that brilliant or that you don't master. Sure. Um, so sort of a flavor-driven um, harmonia, Harmonas uh, dishes with, with a kind of down-to-earth, actual casualness to it um there's a but not saying these restaurants don't exist and they were more uh, prevalent probably five ten years ago i'm hoping there's a cyclical sense to this and yeah there, there'll be a renaissance but i think uh we've we've talked about we've talked about chicago yep uh, i think brunch at Avec kind of uh sure embodies what i'm talking about okay there's a uh, and perhaps brunch it back five years ago. There's a yep, there's probably, probably too many pictures there at the moment. <laughs> yeah.
2: True, true.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's that's where I hope it's it's gonna go. I think fine dining is gonna come back with a bang. Yep, uh, the the formal sense, which is then at the other end of the spectrum, uh, the formal uh, ritual part of the meal. Um, he is probably going to come back.
0: I'm with you on that as well.
1: And we're going to have we're going to have problems with that because we don't have people to deal with it. We he, don't have as far as like staff or Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. Mm-hmm. a whole generation of front-of-house people who don't know how to make a drive team. Right,
0: who have um, gone and, gone casual in a lot of right, ways. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and uh, I mean, I went to I went to hotel school in Switzerland. So of course I am a little bit of granddad Andre. Sure. Place, but but um, we had to wear suits uh, in, in school, and, and um, you know companies like the Four Seasons would be recruiting there, and, and I'm, I've always been opinionated, so I had a bit of a rebellion towards this. And, and the, the resident manager of uh, sort of the boarding part of the school um, said that, um, you know, we recruit for Four Seasons or the Hard Rock Cafe, but... It's a lot easier to get used to wearing jeans again. Got than it. it. Is to get uh, used to looking good in a suit, yeah. Go work for the Four Seasons, and I think, yeah, we're in a we're in a place now where people are used to wearing jeans and uh, or parts of a jean, right? And then, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how that's gonna translate into um, into the fine finer parts of fine dining.
0: Well, I mean, we, we have to see where where it's going to go, I guess. Like, it's just a prediction. I, I, I'm firmly with you that I think fine dining is going to have a resurgence. And it's going to be this thing where casual has to go more casual based on just, like, the economy, the the cost of it, and the sheer, like, becoming a commodity, more or less. And, like, I'm, I'm sure you guys are experiencing it, too, with the, the, the delivery service where you no longer have to go to a physical dining room to get this casual food, right. I think that's also going to play a huge factor going forward where you you don't have to have a restaurant in the traditional sense to serve food as on, on, the, on the casual end. And that will kind yeah, of make...
1: I mean, that's, that even exists on the fine dining uh, part of the spectrum. I mean, we have a former uh, Bocuse d'Or uh, winner, here in Oslo, and a former Michelin-starred chef. He's had two Michelin-starred restaurants. Sure. Um, who only does private parties.
0: Got it. So he'll come to you. Right. I mean, yeah. What What, what gets he'll, better he'll, than
1: that? He'll come to you and make quail and okay. mousse and caviar and sure. that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure it's pricey.
0: Yeah, of course, because, I mean, you're paying for the, the individual, but... Yeah, I I hear you. I hear you. Did but you if
1: you're, if, if you're eating uh, or if you're drinking ten thousand dollar bottles of wine? I'm not sure that the cost of the chef. Is no, it's
0: second name. second nature at that point. Right. Um, did you end up thinking of a a little outside of the industry something we can leave people with? Um, Whether it's not no, something that I, you've read no, this week. I gotta say I
1: don't. Um... My mind's been firmly in the industry in the, industry. In the last uh, sort of uh, week, week and a half. Yeah, finished uh, uh, finished off a couple of restaurant projects here, and I'm just so immersed in the inn, in that world. I was, I was hoping for you to sort of spice my life up yeah. outside of the industry.
0: Uh, let's see. What have I been dealing with lately? Have you, um, let's see. I, no, that's an industry one. Uh what am I excited about right now? Ch-ch-ch-ch-ch. I've just been getting outside quite a bit actually. The weather's finally shaping up now and I've been kind of like I went on a really nice run yesterday. Uh it's really nice to see people outside and I I feel like that is something that we should just do more, especially right. like because we we spend our lives inside in the when we're in the kitchen or writing or I mean, I'm sitting at a desk right now, looking out a window, and it's beautiful outside. So that's definitely next on my list. So maybe that would... the right
1: place for it, though. Yeah, a hundred percent.
0: Yeah, but yeah, I mean, you, Norwegian summers are great.
1: Yeah, you yeah, can't I you mean, can't argue with that. You you spent some time in Bergen. I always say that the summer is normally the best day of the year. in Right. <laughs>
0: it's true. It's so true. Yeah. So that that that'll be our non industry piece today. Just. You you guys should you guys should get outside <laughs> for like ten okay. just like ten minutes.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure they can download this on night. So yeah,
0: sit like, outside so and it's, listen. Uh, it's perfect. It's gonna be long
1: enough for a nice brisk walk that's, in nature.
0: That's perfect. Um, where can people find you as far as like social platforms you like to plug?
1: I was uh, an early adopter of Twitter. I've gone off it, so uh, the best place to find me is normally on Instagram. Yeah, got I it. Am at, at being critical. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I maintain a webpage, which is not really a blog in the sense that it's not really dynamic, you Right. find some of my old usings on there. Um, I'm going to write up something, uh, soon I think about this, uh, why do people think they need to have that many items on the menu? Yep. I feel a rant coming on. For sure. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, Instagram's normally where you can find me see where i might be in the world which tends to be anywhere from tokyo to las vegas um which by the way bringing it all the way back full circle is one of those things that i know to be true that uh, most people don't agree on las vegas highly underrated as a dining uh destination true story
0: because you can get whatever your little heart desires
1: exactly and if you don't mind paying a premium mm-hmm. let's face let's face it uh mid-range is going to be more expensive than kansas city Um, but uh, if you don't mind paying the premium, there's nowhere on the planet there's more choice for upper mid-range.
0: Love it. Love it. Uh, So thank you so much. This has been episode 14 of The Emulsion, and regardless of kind of if you've been watching live on Facebook or if you're on YouTube watching post-recording or if you're on the podcast on iTunes, I want to thank... Everybody for listening. I want to thank Andre for being on. It was super great to have you. I hope you you enjoyed it as much as I did. Yeah, for sure. Um, Go ahead and share this podcast on one of your social networks. I know there's someone in your life or someone that you work with that could use a little bit more industry knowledge. Go ahead and tag me or at being critical and use hashtag the emulsion and we will be sure to say hello to you. Uh, I guess we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks in advance. I'm Justin Kana and this is Andre. Have a good one.